Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Hi, Steve. Welcome back. Uh, why, thank you very much, Matt. So uh, I know last time that we uh, were here with all, with, with all of our podcast land friends, I was on my first night of COVID diagnosis. So uh, that was actually the worst night that I had the entire thing. Oh, good. And uh, I got shakes a little bit that night. But after that, it was just like a bad cold. And I isolated from the rest of my family. Nobody else got it. And uh, I have been good for a week or more at this point. So, uh, yay. I did get a caught up on a lot of reading, though, uh, including some of the stuff I got for Christmas. And one of those things is a book called Tales from the Implosion, which is about the moment in time when the predecessor to Marvel Comics, uh, Atlas Comics, although the name apparently gets a little bit fuzzy over time, um, lost its distribution deal. And went down from, I believe it was 78 separate titles that they were publishing to 16 bi-monthly titles uh, in basically the course of one month. And uh, it's a lot about what sort of laid the groundwork for the rebirth of the company as the Marvel Universe that we're talking about now. Yes. So anyway, so I I did a lot of that reading over my, my convalescence. And uh, so now uh, I've also read some comics for this month and we're ready to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. So I did finally see Spider-Man and I did enjoy oh, it. And, good. Uh, hey, man, I've had COVID. I'm bulletproof. I, uh, I went out to the movie theater. It was it was a lot of fun. It was. It, hold on. I'm watching it going like, but this means that now anybody who wants to fully enjoy the Marvel Universe has to watch all five of those Sony movies. But uh, <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> I, uh, but I was still able to enjoy it quite a bit. But okay, uh, let's go ahead and jump into well, well, this. And, and you know, they're talking about making a new Andrew Garfield Spider Man movie now. Now that it's. What? I didn't that hear canon. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, his uh, trilogy. Yes. <laughs> uh, we'll see. <laughs> that would be rather crazy. Okay. Yes. Let's go ahead and jump into this month's books. We've got five Marvel comics this month, but one of them has two different stories. And then we're also going to do an annual. There's We've got much dispute as to when Fantastic Four annual number one happened. However, in the back of this month's regular monthly Fantastic Four, it does say, hey, soon you'll be able to go out and pick up the annual. So this seems like a good place to say to include it. And of course, next month, the Marvel Universe explodes and we add X-Men and Avengers. So we don't want to save it any longer than that oh one last thing i want to say though uh, i'd meant to mention this about the um the atlas uh, the uh tales of the implosion book um that you know oftentimes when we hear a um you know we hear stories about uh the situation that marvel was in um when uh when we started the marvel universe and that they were in this very restrictive distribution agreement where they could only put out eight books a month and there's always this part of the story about how, like, oh, yeah, but then they just published Fantastic Four number one, just sort of slipped it in without telling them. And no one knows how they're able to get away with it. Uh, one of the things this book points out is that that original eight books per month um, schedule had already been modified once or twice in those intervening two or three years. Uh, and so they had already gone up to 
uh, I forget if it was 10 books a month or like it's alternating 10 books one month and eight books the other month. So that had already happened a couple of months earlier. So the the sort of apocryphal story of them slipping in the Fantastic Four sort of against the rules to, you know, get this in there uh, apparently is a little bit embellished. Aha. Okay. So anyway, but one way or the other, we'll get into what we need to get into here. Yes. So let's go ahead and start with, so Fantastic Four number 17, we are going to try to move through everything quicker these days. We are not going to read the whole cover anymore because, you know, everything's about to explode and we're going to need more time. So I'll just say that Fantastic Four number 17, it says in the clutches of Dr. Doom, and then it shows all four of them in various traps laid by Dr. Doom. So then the issue begins. They, so they were hanging out with Ant-Man last issue. Now, one thing they've never dealt with in Ant-Man's comic they always show that he gets to places by shooting himself out of a little cannon and then landing on a pile of ants. That's never clear how he gets home, because presumably <laughs> the places he's going to don't have little cannons to shoot him back. And he presumably just has to walk home for what would seem to be 50 miles to him from wherever he is. Well, this time we do get to see him leave, because we're seeing Ant-Man leave at the end of last issue, and he seems to be flying through the air. Well, how's he doing it? Well, it turns out Reed knew his preferred method of travel and built him a little cannon. Reed says, I'll put away this little launching platform I built for him. Never know when we might need it again. Johnny says, we sure could use a joker like him in our combo, eh, Reed? Now we know how Ant-Man gets home as long as he's visiting someone who can make him his own little platform for returning home. And and at this point, though, Reed must know the exact coordinates of where his home is because he had to go ahead and launch him to that exact place. Indeed. So uh, unless he let him set it himself. So then they recall the previous issue where they fought Dr. Doom. We see a little bit more than we did of last issue because we see that Johnny got knighted by Princess Perla. We then see them all go out searching for Dr. Doom because they know he got back. There's a very funny bit where the thing thinks he sees Dr. Doom on the street. And instead, it's somebody walking around with a sandwich board for a movie called When Knights Were Bold and happened to be wearing a night outfit that kind of looks like Dr. Doom. There's an even funnier bit where Sue sees somebody selling a science fiction gun on the street, two wonderful Kirby CD characters selling a science fiction gun on the street. And it turns out that, no, they're just selling a ping pong ball shooting toy. And uh, Sue screws up the sale. And so it never misses, eh? And I thought you were a great toy inventor. We then see the Fantastic Four are going out for the evening and they are trying to get around their fans. And an old man elevator operator is like, I can help you escape. And then shake your hands. But it turns out it's Dr. Doom in disguise. Not the last time this month we'll see a great Fantastic Four villain in disguise as an old gray-bearded man. And it is implied here that the old man getup was on over his iron mask. So it, it looks like he just, you know, so once again, masks over masks over masks. That's a, a recurring theme. Yes. We then see Johnny out on a date again. They're really very much now going into this Johnny as Wolf always, yes. you know, so he's like out parking. But now I'm glad we're together. That goes double for me, dollface. Say, here's my favorite parking place. Would you like to look and see if I have something in my eye? Johnny Storm, did anyone ever tell you what a fast worker you are? And But then Johnny is attacked by a flying white puffy man, a silent robot. We see the same thing attack Ben and Alicia. We see one that is for some reason pink polka dotted going after Sue. We see one going after Reed as they're all in their own places. They 
reconvene, Reed realizes that old man put little things on their hands and takes them off. The things disappear. Then, Oh, and Dr. by Doom, the way, Reed loses out on an honorary doctorate because of all this. They, they were just like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> this is a, uh, this is very improper to uh, have a big uh, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man flying over your head. Uh, no, no, no PhD for you. Yes. Well, my little friend, you ruined my evening, lost me an honorary degree, and I still can't lose you, he says to his white flying thing. <laughs> but they get rid of them, and then Dr. Doom sees this, and it's like, oh, whatever that plan was, it's falling apart. So he's like, instead, I'll kidnap Alicia. So he kidnaps Alicia, summons her through the air into his flying pink palace, which is in the clouds. So then her getting kidnapped has had time to make the papers by the time Ben finally finds out about it. He, of course, is furious. Dr. Doom then appears to them. And Dr. Doom says, I will not return Alicia until you give me what I want. So this is a big thing in Dr. Doom comics, is that they never know what Dr. Doom wants in these early comics. And to a certain degree, never in the history of Dr. Doom are they ever very consistent about what Dr. Doom wants. And that has never been more clear in this issue, where what Dr. Doom wants is absolutely nuts. Dr. Doom says, I will return Alicia. My terms are modest, for one as powerful as I. All I insist upon is a post in the president's cabinet. It is only fitting that a man of my ability have at least cabinet rank in government. So, and he's not even specifying which post. It's like, does he want to be secretary of defense? Does he want to be secretary of agriculture? It doesn't even matter to him. He's like, he's like, I demand some sort of seat in Kennedy's cabinet. Now, can you imagine Dr. Doom at a cabinet meeting? Just <laughs> with everybody else going like, and then there's, uh... Dr. Doom, he uh, joined the cabinet <laughs> because he kidnapped a blind woman, and now he is in the cabinet. Dr. Doom, we need you to do a presentation on Pork Belly Futures <laughs> as our new Secretary of Agriculture. <laughs> yeah, that sounds um, that sounds about right. You know, it's just like, yeah, it's it's like one of those uh, deal with the devil things where it's like, I want a seat on the cabinet. It's like, okay, you're now Secretary of Transportation. It's like, oh, I should have been more specific. <laughs> no, it's not specific. So, they, and, but they, they also have this weird thing they do, and they, they've continued with this off and on through the years in the comics, uh, sometimes doing this and sometimes not, of like having it be very clear that this is definitely John F. Kennedy with, but just these oblique shots of like, there's just his hair and his forehead. But then, you know, he's saying something about like, uh, what is it? Um, and now, gentlemen, if you'll excuse me, it's Caroline's bedtime, you know, and it's just like, what, so why don't you just show him? I don't. Anyway, yeah, well, especially because the next page, they show Khrushchev. So yes. they are willing to show Khrushchev's face. They're not willing to show John F. Kennedy's face. Of course, John F. Kennedy was about to die. Nobody knew that. But so we see John F. Kennedy in a rocking chair, and then we see his hair, and he says, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to let Dr. Doom on my cabinet. Dr. Doom starts wrecking missile tests. We cut to people who are celebrating this in the Soviet Union, but Khrushchev, who I, I guess Khrushchev has no hair, so he can't be shown by his hair. <laughs> so he has to be shown full in the face. And he says, stop quoting you numbskulls. Dr. Doom is not doing this for us. For all we know, he may strike here next. Cut back to the United States. Reed Richards has figured out where Dr. Doom's floating pink palace is. And <laughs> now we try to keep this podcast kid friendly. So I'm not sure how to describe this. <laughs> but he puts Ben. He says the only one who can get in is Ben is the thing while he's Ben Grimm. So I'll give him one of his pretty consistent things now where he can always turn him into Ben Grimm just for a little while. And I'll put him in what can only be described as a flying robot sperm. <laughs> I don't know. 
if we're allowed uh, to say that on this podcast. I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's sort of like a cross between that and like an octopus or something like that, or a jellyfish. It, if it, it, there it, are any kids listening to this podcast right now, let me just say that when a man loves a woman very much, <laughs> uh, that then a jellyfish, uh, apparently, yeah, I don't know. It, it looks like a cross between that and a jellyfish, but, uh, yeah, it's, but, it's a little but bit the picture of this jellyfish, let's call it. <laughs> penetrating this egg-like pod is very uh, suggestive. Suggestive. Anyway, so then they go ahead and insert this little thing that the thing is in into this <laughs> ship. It makes it in just before he becomes Finn Grimm again. Uh, he then smashes open a hole for everybody else to come in. They are all four caught in various traps. They all four escape their various traps. Which and is weird. Then, for, for some reason, they decide that it would be better for them to all split up and go in different directions, thinking, oh, well, he can't catch us all at once. But then that just splits them up, and then they can't act like a team. And everybody happens to end up in the room that was apparently designed just for them. Yes, as any dungeon master can tell you, splitting up the team is death. <laughs> and the other thing I, I wanted to say is that with the, uh, the thing's particular trap, uh, I can see no reason why that greased pole was even there. Like <laughs> yes. that, that, that's there's no reason for that pole to be there in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> yes, the thing is just sent through a trap door, uh, falling into the city below. But there is a greased pole there, which supposedly is not going to be no help to him because it's greased. But of course, his powerful hands just crease the pole, and then he's able to climb up it. So then uh, Dr. Doom attacks them all with hurtling power spheres once they're reunited. He says, they're gone. I've won. At last, Dr. Doom has defeated the Fantastic Four. But then, nope. It turns out that Johnny has a new power we have never heard about. He can create convincing illusions of anything using his flame powers. And then to show this, he draws an illusory Dr. Doom sort of crudely. And he says... So here's one I can make of you. Pretty good for a guy who never went to art school, huh? So this is, in, they're entirely dependent on Johnny's artistic abilities in his holography. And it turns out Johnny is a sophisticated and experienced holographer and knows how to do the team pretty well. And good this, enough for government work. And this goes back to uh, what I pointed out is that essentially the way that they thought of Johnny's powers at this point were something more akin to Green Lantern or later Firestorm. Uh, yes, you know, it's, it's rather than just, hey, it's fire. It's like, yes, but it's fire that can be all of these different solid things. It's like, no. <laughs> uh, but then, uh, do, so do we pass the Bechdel test here on page 20? I'm not quite sure. They are talking about Dr. Doom. Yeah, you know, the thing about the Bechdel <laughs> test is that the way the Bechdel test is frequently interpreted these days, nothing passed the Bechdel test. Like, you know, if... And the number one sign of this is if you read Alison Bechtel's original Dykes to Watch Out For cartoon, where she proposed the Bechtel test, she is saying that, oh, you know, I like movies like Alien, which has two named women characters who talk about something other than a man. Well, if you actually go back and watch Alien through the eyes of how people currently talk about the Bechtel test, it doesn't pass because the, there's only one brief conversation between the two women, and they're talking about whether or not the male robot has ever hit on them. They, they are figuring out he has a robot because they're talking about whether or not he's ever hit on them. Well, that fails the Bechdel test according <laughs> to current the current way people talk about it. But when even the 
ultra example of passing it is now failing it, then I think that this test has become somewhat <laughs> problematic. But yes, so they are talking here. They're alone in a so, room. So by they, I'm sorry, I jumped forward there. Basically, Sue sneaks into the room where Alicia is being held hostage and talks to her. That, that, yeah. And I, I skipped past that when I talked about the thing. Okay. And it's funny how like the fashions... You know, early 60s fashions are still somewhat a continuation of like 40s fashions and that the women still wear a lot of suits that, you know, Alicia's wearing a suit. This is like a big thing, you know, like women in the 40s and movies are always wearing suits and uh, they're still wearing them here. So then Sue imitates Alicia so that Dr. Doom will think he's going to Alicia. She then turns invisible. As we all know, Invisible Sue, always good at beating up Dr. Doom. And yes. once again, she is beating him up and he attacks her, but then the whole team comes and Dr. Doom flees out the window and disappears into the clouds in three panels that are very similar to the panels of him disappearing into space in issue number six. And then Reed and Sue hug each other. Alicia and Ben hug each other. And Johnny says, yeesh, what a lot of mush. I don't blame Dr. Doom for jumping. So that's this issue. I think it is a merely serviceful issue of the Fantastic Four, nowhere near as fun as the previous Doctor Doom issue where they go to the Micro Kingdom, which that issue was full of delights and big imagination on Kirby and Lee's part. And there is much smaller imagination on Kirby and Lee's part in this issue. One thing that I will point out about this particular story is that uh, it really cements the idea that the Thing and Alicia have a uh, unique bond that they are yes. a love match in one way or another, depending on, you know, uh, we don't know exactly how that works. And, you know, between the proprieties of the sixties and the, uh, anatomical, uh, issues involved, but that he very much considers himself to be in love with Alicia. Uh, and I think that we, we haven't really gotten that to this extreme degree before this issue. So I think it's an yeah. important issue for that reason. Yes. And, uh, you know, it is a fun issue. And the degree of incident in these early issues is just still just so extreme. There's so much story here. And they're doing a lot of good character work, showing them all for going off and doing their various things. And there's just a lot of real weirdness with Doom wanting a seat in the cabinet. That's fun. It shows that they really don't know what Doom wants. All Doom really ever wants is to kill the Fantastic Four. And once he actually gets a chance. They always say that the way to win any arguments is to ask somebody, okay, how does your plan work? And then you instantly win the argument because everybody collapses. I feel like the way to defeat Dr. Doom is to go like, okay, Dr. Doom, let's say you defeated the Fantastic Four. Then what would you want? And he's like, uh, but I, um, a seat in the cabinet? I, I. Well, I think this is why they very soon after this have him take over the country of Latveria. And that sort of gives him a little bit more reason, a little bit more of a grounding in something. You know, something that he has a, something to protect, something, you know, he got some actual work worldly power and he likes exercising that power and he has a home base that he can retreat to and that i think that that makes the character make a little bit more sense when we get to that which is coming up pretty shortly here if i'm not mistaken yes we desperately need latveria at this point yes all right so uh i guess we move on next to journey into mystery number 95 is that correct yes okay so this is uh thor on the cover we have two thors one of those Thors has two hammers, and he is throwing both of those hammers at the other Thor. So we've got a duplicate of Thor who is fighting Thor. 
they duplicate one, Thor with a duplicate hammer and a duplicate of that hammer. So yes. a total of two Thors and three hammers. Yes, yes, absolutely. Once again, this issue is plotted by Stan Lee, scripted by R. Burns, which is short for Robert Bernstein, penciling and inking by Joe Sinnott. And once again, I really like Joe Sinnott's art, just at, for art's sake. I love the execution of it. I love sort of the, just as a penciler and an inker, I just really like him. But uh, this issue is going to be a problem. So <laughs> he's just, you know, to the degree to which the artists were potting the books, I just don't think Sinat was a good potter. He just yeah. wasn't. He just completely lacked Kirby and Dicko's imagination. Right. And for that matter, Art Burns would lack Lee's later flair for scripting Thor. And so we've got these very sort of pedestrian mundane stories from Sinat if he is the potter. And we have this pedestrian mundane dialogue from Art Burns. And Thor has been a bit of a chore, but soon Kirby will be back. So uh, the story starts out with Thor having been called back to Asgard because Asgard has a drought. And apparently Thor, being the Thunder God, is the only one of the gods who can actually make it rain, which I guess kind of makes sense. But part of me is like, I don't know, dude, you got a bunch of Asgardians around here with all sorts of stuff. Isn't there something else you could do? But so he comes by and does his little stamping on the ground thing. And then the thunderstorm starts. He's like, uh, Dad, I got to bounce. I got a thing I have to do. So um, I'm going to be back a little while, you know, so I'll come back next week and turn off the rain. Like, all right, that's very good. So what he has to get back to New York City for is this is a a continuation of Don Blake, super scientist, which we have seen a little bit before. And this takes it to a ridiculously higher degree. (laughs) We already had the thing where he invented the sort of like remote x-ray telescope searchamogram thing that he used to search for his hammer and found it under the river it out of materials that he had in his medical lab in the course of two hours right so we already had that but now at this point apparently he has built an android um that is being displayed and uh thor shows up to demonstrate some stuff with the android uh, and then meanwhile, Blake's uh, collaborator on this whole Android thing is the one who's doing the presentation. So, yes, but of course, this makes no sense at all to have like, no, oh, wouldn't it be fun to have Thor stop by, which of course means the inventor himself, Don Blake, cannot be there. And it's like, well, wouldn't it make more sense to have Don Blake go there? Yes, Thor tells Odin, I'll head straight for the scientist convention where Professor Zaxton is scheduled to demonstrate the strange Android, which my other identity, Dr. Don Blake, invented. Like, what, what? What sort of doctor is, I mean, like it's, he's been shown as being a medical doctor in the past. Yes. And, and, and we've seen him doing surgery and, uh, we've seen him running just sort of a general practitioner, you know, a general practice. And then we've also seen him creating super science. And then this is even bigger super science, even superer science. So, uh, it turned, and actually, you know what, this feels a lot like a silver age Superman comic. It does. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, they're showing how intelligent the Android is and is able to do like a higher math because of course he's got an IQ of 375 and then they're showing how strong he is by having Thor try to hit him with a hammer. They're then talking about how these things can be used to be invincible soldiers. And I'm like, oh wow. Okay. So now we're getting into the dystopian stuff being sold as, Hey, wouldn't this be awesome folks? 
<laughs> yeah. But then the uh, Android starts to short circuit because of stuff that Zaxton is doing. Zaxton, the, uh, the other scientist who is doing the presentation. And he's like, oh, no, I messed up the controls and I'm turning all the dials at once. And what's going to happen? And then he's like, oh, yeah, well, so don't worry. It's going to be destroyed. But, you know, it's indestructible skin on the outside. You know, we'll, we'll keep it all in there. He's like, no, you fool. It's all made of the same material. And so it'll splint, splinter and the indestructible skin will just become like shrapnel. And uh, so then Thor has to wrap the thing up and tie it to his hammer and throw his hammer up into the sky to have it explode harmlessly in the sky. And then it comes back and he, you know, Thor's like, oh man, that sucks. My super science Android had to be blown up. Huh, well, whew, bad day. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it yes. seems he might be a little bit more distraught by this whole thing. And then, so he comes back and finds out that Zaxton is there in his office when he gets back and he's like, Hey, Zaxton, what's going on? And Hey, by the way, did you see Jane? And he's basically like, guess what? I kidnapped Jane. And yes, I sabotaged our presentation on purpose um, because I was, I forget the exact reason, but one way or the other. Yeah, I was, now I was I've, looking forward to see how you finished that sentence, Steve. Uh, uh, <laughs> read this issue and I didn't see him ever explain why he sabotaged the presentation. Because waves hands and now I have Jane prisoner. So because of that, you are going to use your knowledge that you have demonstrated by creating this android to then help me use my duplicator machine, which can duplicate any solid object and make it work on living objects. Because clearly, you know how to create artificial living objects. You can help tweak my machine so that it can actually duplicate living beings. Blake is not quite sure how to deal with the situation in terms of he could turn into Thor, but then he has this code against human harm in except in self-defense. So if he just turned into Thor and then just beat the guy up until he told him where Jane was, that would go against his code of honor. So he just yeah. stays... So kidnapping Jane is not enough. Kidnapping Jane... All he did was kidnap Jane. You can't do any harm to him just because he kidnapped Jane. That doesn't rise to the level of Thor meeting out justice. Don Blake then goes through the motions of trying to help the guy. And well, I guess not just goes through the motions, actually does help him. And then uh, Zaxton tries out his duplicating machine on some on an alley cat and uh, just creates a whole bunch of more feral alley cats for, you know, whatever uh, alley cat um, uh, rescue is going to have to deal with those later. And then so uh, meanwhile, while he's trying that, Blake goes into the closet and turns into Thor. And for some reason, this time, when Dr. Zaxton sees him turn into Thor, he recognizes, hey, you were Donald Blake, and now you've just turned into Thor. The first time that anybody has actually been able to figure that out. Every other time people were looking right at Donald Blake as he turned into Thor. They were like, hey, what happened to Donald Blake, Thor? And Thor is always like, I threw Donald Blake out the window, and here I am. <laughs> I, I threw disabled Dr. Blake <laughs> out the window. <laughs> yeah, so this time, though, he recognized him. So he then duplicates Thor. But then at this point, we find out that whatever duplicates are made, living duplicates, have the exact opposite personality of the one that was being duplicated. So this Thor so is apparently evil. he noticed that the alley cat was evil and then its duplicate was good. And then the duplicate of that one was evil and the duplicate of that one was good. So, <laughs> <laughs> Or, or, or I, you know, or was he just shooting it continually at the original alley cat? And so he kept on getting... Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? But um, so he he creates so he creates these duplicates, and apparently the duplicates have an opposite personality from the original, 
and are under his mental control. You'd think yes. he would only have to pick one of those two, but they went ahead and went for both of them here. So um, we see Thor once again. He's got the whole thing where the number of thumps that he does with his hammer ends up doing different things. So four thumps for lightning. So he's fighting this evil Thor who has been given a duplicate hammer. So he's a like duplicate hammer and a duplicate of that duplicate hammer. So so well, that's that's what I meant. As in, he has his own hammer that was copied and then that duplicate hammer was copied now does mjolnir have an opposite personality i don't know how that works here is 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 this mjolnir evil and then is the copy of that one good uh then at one point dr zaxton actually goes and duplicates a passenger plane and creates dozens of them just to like get in between thor and the duplicate and i'm sitting here thinking okay the implications of this (laughs) are really huge it's like did you just duplicate this plane dozens of times and now you just duplicated all of the jet fuel that's in there and duplicated all of the passengers and pilots and are all these things going to need to land somewhere or do they all just disintegrate at some point (laughs) like okay do not think about this too hard this will not last very long we just need to get through these next few pages do not think about this harder than joseph i thought about this (laughs) And then uh, when Thor is cornered and duplicate evil Thor throws his two hammers, Thor finds out that these do not hurt him when they hit him. And then he sees, once again, the magic inscription talking about whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. And since this duplicate is not worthy, then these hammers do not actually have the power that they should have. So he goes ahead and is able to get rid of the duplicate Thor uh, just by hitting with the hammer and he, you know, fades away to nothingness. And then he goes down to get Zaxton, but um, Zaxton makes a duplicate of himself. And then, of course, he, Zaxton, who is evil, falls off an overpass and dies. But then that means the duplicate Zaxton who's here is actually not evil. And you know, conveniently enough, somehow doesn't remember that Thor was Dr. Donald Blake. He's able to just be like, oh yeah, no, he's, um, he's, he, here he is back in a society. He's now a good guy. And then meanwhile, I'll go get Jane Foster. And, uh, she, Jane is saying, thank goodness you found me. Professor Zaxton must have gone mad. And Thor says, I know Jane, but now he's, uh, snapped out of it. He's sorry for what he's done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because That's... he now knows he's a good guy. Uh, and then the la- very last uh, the very last panel is Thor back in Asgard, where Odin is like, oh, I thought you might have forgotten us, Thor. And Thor's like, oh, I could never forget Asgard. I'm going to come here and stop the rain for you. Uh, yes. And Odin just seems, you know, kind of like just a, a kindly old grandpa here, rather than the uh, grizzled old vet- veteran warrior that we uh, will know him as in future years. And once again, no spectacular helmet, no spectacular throne. No, no, no. He is uh, he is very plain at this point. He he will he will get fabulous later. Yes. So a merely serviceable yeah. issue of Thor, I would say. Yeah, I, you know. Once again, I really enjoy just looking at the Synod art, but in terms of the issues that he is, you know, once again, we don't know exactly how much plot came from Stan Lee and how much plot came from Joe Synod. One way or the other, yeah, the issues that he ends up drawing are lackluster at best and uh but i love looking at the art yeah i would say that sinon should have been doing a daily comic strip that he has yeah. uh, you know he he should have been doing rex morgan md he could have 
you know, mm-hmm. well, I mean, what Sinat should have been doing is he should have been inking Kirby because I feel like Sinat <laughs> achieved immortality when he became an inker for Kirby. And that that was the best possible use of Joe Sinat's time would have been inking Kirby. But as a pencil and inker, instead of doing Thor, if he'd been doing Rex Morgan MD, he would have knocked it out of the park. Yeah, uh, or Brenda Starr or, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, any of those sorts of things. Yes. All right. So uh, I guess we're moving on to Strange Tales, number 111. Yes. Yes. Strange Tales, number 111. So I will do the first half of the book. Strange Tales. How can the human torch defend himself against the asbestos man? So this is an issue that sort of, I think, people think of when they think of how lame the Human Torch's mm-hmm. run in Strange Tales was, because we've had lots of asbestos accessories for Chinese villains, but this time they go whole hog. They've got a, a man whose asbestos is his whole thing. And, of course, this is where we make the standard jokes about how he died shortly thereafter of mesothelioma. Probably these jokes aren't very <laughs> funny, because this is a real thing, and lots of people actually died of mesothelioma. But, yes, which uh, is why there are still TV ads to this day asking people about their mesothelioma and the lawsuits that it brings up. We apologize for any discomfort we may have caused with that. Uh, one yes. thing I will point out about this cover, and this is something, this is a connection I hadn't really made until this one, but as someone who actually did study medieval iconography in college, as one of the things that I studied, this very much feels like, or this thing that Kirby tends to do feels very much like medieval iconography in that essentially perspective was not perspective what in in medieval art instead different sizes corresponded directly to how important that particular character was in the story being depicted so mm-hmm. if you were the main character that was being displayed or talked about or shown about to the uh, illiterate populace of Europe uh, in your stained glass whatever you know whatever it is uh, then that would be the biggest character and then the other characters would be smaller because this is the one you need to pay attention to and i really find that this care this cover looks very much like that kind of medieval kind of layout here so asbestos man and uh johnny are both about the same size and all these other people are tiny even though that perspective doesn't really work out anyway just yeah good point that. is so, it is it though <laughs> that was a good point yes okay don't, all right don't put yourself down steve Excellent point. So then, yes, and I did look up for this book that apparently mesothelioma, asbestosis, and lung cancer are three different things you can get from asbestos. They aren't all the same thing. Um, But uh, yes, so then we go ahead and do this book. There's a man named Kaslov who is walking down the street. He sees Human Torch defeating some villains. It occurs to him like, oh, you know, I'm a disgruntled scientist, just like every other scientist in this world, apparently. And I... (laughs) could be making a lot of money and hey the criminals in this town probably want help defeating human torch so i can offer it to them and make myself rich so then he goes around looking for criminals thus the professor begins to haunt the criminal dives of the city slums searching for the men he needs to foster his criminal career and he walks up to two very shady looking thugs so i should say this issue is uh pot stanley story h huntley previously credited as H.E. Huntley, uh, one of the senior scripters we have, who famously wrote Go to the Ants Thou Sluggard, and Penciling and Inking by Dick Ayers, and good, good Dick Ayers art. I was about to say this was Kirby before, which is a sign of how good it is, because these sort of look like Kirby's thugs, but they are air solo thugs. The professor goes up to them and says, pardon me, but er, I am looking for a member of the Underworld to take into partnership. <laughs> and, and then the thug goes, what's with this guy? Some kind of nut? And they say, get lost, chum. 
Well, the, and, and, and this was after he had attempted to become a criminal on his own, but then realized there's just simple criminal stuff that he doesn't know. So he's like, well, with my scientific knowledge and the criminals, you know, criming abilities, then we could really get going. So then he decides to become a, a bad guy. And he says, well, the first thing you need when you're a bad guy is you need an old castle. So he manages to, even though he is desperate for work, he manages to scrounge up the money to buy an old castle, goes ahead and creates an asbestos sort of gladiator-themed outfit, mails a letter to the Human Torch saying, uh, I dare you to face me, signed to the asbestos man. The Torch is like, ah, yeah, well, you know, I'm sure this is just a bunch of crap. And then he tries to burn the letter up, but it won't burn. It's made out of asbestos. And that convinces him that this guy is for real. He then gets out his chemistry book to look up to see what his chemistry book says about asbestos. He <laughs> recites all sorts Because of... it's not like everything in his whole room and everything in his house isn't already made of asbestos. <laughs> yes, we had found out before that he has asbestos sheets on his bed, but it's never occurred to him until now to actually look up what asbestos is. And of course, this chemistry book contains some facts about asbestos, does not contain the most salient facts about asbestos, which I guess had not been discovered. <laughs> or or I think I think the reason there are all the lawsuits is it had been discovered by the people who made asbestos, but had not yet been made public to the I people so. buying the asbestos. By the way, um, how many old abandoned castles are there in the greater New York area? Well, I think in Glenview. I think that the, the guy <laughs> with the uh, imps was also in the general Glenview oh, area. So and you I think, think this might be the same the same castle? Like after he <laughs> was put away, that this may be the one. That's why he was able to get it for cheap. <laughs> well, he has to specify, come along to the old castle on Thorn Road. So he doesn't say, come along to the old castle. He's like, come along to the old castle <laughs> on Thorn Road. So of all the old castles surrounding Glenview, this well, is you, you the don't specific wanna, one I want you to come to. You don't want to accidentally go to Dr. Doom's castle. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So he's this guy who, again, doesn't know much about crime, is like, so first thing I should do is I should send Human Torch a letter, tell him exactly where I live, and have him come here and fight me. So he does. Uh, Human Torch shows up. The guy, he has a bunch of asbestos, defeats Human Torch. Then, once again, this comes up almost every issue. Does it work to open a trapdoor under the Human Torch? Human Torch specifically said last issue it wouldn't, but this time it does, possibly because his flame is getting weaker. And, uh, and, and also, I will point out, there's a, there's an interesting little, as you would call it, science with the English majors thing here on the bottom of page nine, where uh, Johnny is throwing the fireballs that uh, Asbestos Man caught, catches in a net. And he says that the net has nitrogen strands in it. And you know what happens when nitrogen comes in contact with heat elements? Well, nothing. But <laughs> <laughs> but I think that what uh, what they, what the you know what I was going to say Stan, but Stan or Dick or H. E. Huntley or whoever was thinking of when writing this is that if you have nitrogen compounds and they get heated up that they can blow up. I mean, that's basically what the uh, uh, Oklahoma City bombing was, was, you know, that. Yeah. But it, but if you just have nitrogen strands, it's like, yeah, that's not a, that's not a thing. But. <laughs> so then he dumps Johnny into a moat, seemingly into, uh, yes, he says, swim to the end of the moat and you will find a door which you can escape. Johnny goes home and cries in his pillow. Uh, then Sue finds him there and... Wamps down wet on his bed. Like in in all of his clothes, he just swam through this this moat, then gets home and just falls down in his wet sopping clothes onto his bed, which yes. uh, that that's low right there. It is. So then they meanwhile the asbestos man is still taunting him. 
Sue is giving him encouraging words. He decides to go fight the asbestos man again, but this time, instead of trying to melt the asbestos man who can't be melted because he's asbestos, he will melt his net. Now, you would think if the asbestos man can send an asbestos letter, he could also have an asbestos net, but he doesn't. Johnny melts his net, then Johnny melts a chandelier to fall on his head and melts the the actual stones, the stone floor of his castle Johnny manages to melt so that he falls through, then he burns up all the oxygen around him. So he defeats him in various clever ways by burning things other than the asbestos man himself. And now, then, a, a, uh, as the little, as he, the little science lesson though says about asbestos, asbestos is basically just rock fibers. So if you can melt this rock, you know, <laughs> he should anyway. be able to melt his vessels itself. That is true. So then uh, the professor surrenders and Johnny says, remember, professor, you can never play with fire without dot, 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 getting burned. The end. So yes. uh, this is an infamous issue, an issue that came to stand in for how generally lame this book was and poorly dated this book was. Surely one of the most poorly dated stories in comic book history. Little did they know what the actual threat of the asbestos man was, but yes. a well-penciled and inked by heirs. So, you know, we've, we tend to say these things on the show and then turn out to be wrong, but next issue, X-Men and the Avengers are going. And I think I can safely say at this point that Kirby is gone for good from I'll go, Strange I'll Tales. Go, I'll go out on that limb with you. He is gone for good from Strange Tales, from Iron Man, and from Ant-Man. I don't think he is ever going to draw another Strange Tales Human Torch story, another Tales of Sasha Ant-Man story, or another Iron Man story. So at this point, we're stuck with Ayers on this book, and I think Ayers is doing a good job. I think Ayers is doing excellent pacing and thinking on this issue. And of course, again, we have the same problem with Thor, where he just lacks Kirby's fire for great characters and visual imagination. And Kirby's end, it goes, and Lee's to the extent that we want to give Lee credit for anything. You know, and I do like how it has a clever solution. I like how he has to actually outthink his opponents, which they tend to be pretty good at in these Human Torch stories. Human Torch stories almost end with some way where he has to outthink somebody, as opposed to, say, the Thor stories, where he rarely does. So I do like that. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, after we get done with the Johnny Torch story, Johnny Torch, I keep on doing it. The uh, Human Torch Johnny Storm story. We are now going to go on to our second Doctor Strange, Master of Black Magic, wherein we are introduced to Baron Mordo, who um, I believe uh, would probably be considered his arch foe. Would that not be? Maybe Dormammu. I, yeah. you know, or Dormammu. He's, he's I never know how to pronounce that. But yes, I, I, we can go ahead and call Baron Mordo his arch foe. Sure. <clears throat> uh, well, his arch human foe. Let's put it that way. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. Um, and of course, once again, for those of you who know more about Marvel from the Marvel movies, uh, of course, Baron Mordo is in the first Doctor Strange movie. And At this point, uh, you're supposed to say the name of the actor who plays him in the Doctor Strange movies. I knew and you were going to put. I will, I will judge your pronunciation. <laughs> uh, uh, Chitawella Jetifor? <laughs> I'm no sorry. Idea how to pronounce his name. Chitawella uh, Jetifor is how I usually pronounce it. I've um, it. The star of 12 Years a Slave. Excellent actor. Uh, I apologize yes. to everybody for not knowing how to pronounce his name. Yes. A comic book artist who uh, I am friends with, uh, Jamal Eigel, has uh, 
recently at least had it as his Twitter handle uh, or his Twitter name. You know, it's not the handle, but the name. What was it? Family Dollar Shittawella Jetta Four. <laughs> 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 he, he's a black artist. So he's, uh, he said he's the he's the Family Dollar version. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, uh, he is played by that very talented actor whose name I should have double checked how to pronounce before we started this. And we'll go back and listen to this. And Matt, when you're editing this later, uh, if our mispronunciation of his name sounds too offensive. We can just cut the whole thing. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm not cutting anything. You're, you're stuck. <laughs> I'm stuck. It's like the Saturday Night Live news where uh, Michael Che writes the racist jokes for uh, Colin Jost. <laughs> exactly. To say. Yes. Okay. So anyway, face to face with the magic of Baron Mordo. Baron Mordo is essentially just thinking, you know what? The only person who's better at black magic than I am is Doctor Strange. And I don't like that, so I'm going to no, he con- doesn't think conquer Strange. him. He doesn't oh, think sorry, Dr. Strange. Oh, sorry, sorry, the ancient one. He says, only one man right. knows more secrets of black magic than I do, and it is he who taught me years ago. He is the master. Yes. He doesn't, he he knows that Dr. Strange is his arch foe, but he's con- quite convinced he's stronger than Dr. Strange. Yes, yes, I, I, I apologize. So um, Baron Mordo then takes over the mind of one of the assistants who helps the Ancient One in his sanctum. And, um, but the Ancient One's still not called the Ancient One, just called the Master in this issue. Oh, is he? Did, didn't they use the term Ancient One last issue? Or did they no, not? No, they didn't use it last issue. They haven't used it this issue. Okay, well. Just called um, the Master. The okay, the master who shall eventually be known as the ancient one ends up getting poisoned by his servant who is being mind controlled by Baron Mordo. It's a slow acting poison, and he's trying to get uh, the master to give up his secrets before he dies of this poison. Let's see. So then, meanwhile, Doctor Strange is doing black magic experiments. So I don't know if they're taking the doctor thing a little bit too literally here. But Ditko is to be credited. We've got to give Ditko some credit for once just for once not having an Erlenmeyer flask in Dr. Strange's hand because <laughs> we know how much Dicko loves his Erlenmeyer flasks but yes. uh, he is not actually doing that yes yes uh, absolutely so then at that point when he gets done with his uh, black magic experiments he is trying to uh, report his results to the master but the master is not responding over amulet so he sends his astral form off to uh, check up on the master and finds Baron Mordo's astral form there trying to shake down the master for his secrets. So and for then, the first time they for the first time they do say Tibet. They make it clear yes. that it is in Tibet this time. Yes. Uh, and so then uh, Mordo and Strange get into some ectoplasmic fisticuffs, but Doctor Strange is feeling like he's being overpowered. And, uh, but then Dr. Strange is able to use the astral form of his eye of Agamotto, which has not been named yet. Um, but the magic eye that he has to, uh, essentially give some energy and some power to the master, the ancient one in order to, uh, bring him out of his drug induced stupor. Mordo escapes back to his physical body. Well, Strange tricks him. I always like it in these stories where they trick him. And so Strange is like, my enchanted amulet can transmit its energy to wherever your mortal body may be. It shall find it and prevent you from ever returning to it again. And Mordo falls for the trap and he says, never, I am stronger than you, stronger than your amulet. I shall reach it first. And then, of course, when they get there, he says, you cannot escape. Mordo takes over his human body again and says, you cannot escape me now. And Strange says, I do not desire to escape you. I have won. The master is safe. You blundered into my trap. My amulet did not have the power to lead me here, but you did in your panic. Yes. 
Yes. And in the end, Dr. Strange is praised by his master for uh, defeating Baron Mordo and protecting him. And then there's some ominous predictions about, about their future. Then basically a whole thing about black magic and all of this other stuff. And then uh, more of the occult adventures of Dr. Strange will appear in future in a future issue of Strange Tales. Notice it does not say next issue. It does uh, not. And yes. indeed, Dr. Strange will not be back next issue, nor in the following issue. So and, seemingly he failed his tryout here until they give him a reprieve three issues from now. You know, or it could be that Steve Ditko showed up with these two stories and then, you know, Stan Lee just went ahead and put these in two successive issues. And it's like, oh, let's see. Let's see how it works out. And we'll, we'll, we'll find out from here. One thing I want to point out is that Doctor Strange does not yet have his cloak of levitation. He will be getting that shortly or, you know, in coming months. And as I mentioned earlier, too, the Eye of Agamotto, which has not yet been named, but his eye amulet will disappear when he re- when he comes back in a couple of months. He'll have a much simpler looking amulet and then he'll have to somehow earn back the Eye of Agamotto. And I don't know exactly how that happens, but um, I was surprised to see it here since I know that he does not have it in uh, some of the upcoming issues. But um, yes, yeah, so yeah. this is certainly a momentous story in that it introduces Baron Mordo, who will be one of his primary nemeses going forward. And uh, we see a little bit more of how his ectoplasmic self can work in the real world and what kinds of powers it has to interact with real world things. And we're doing a lot of nice world building that we're going to need for um, Doctor Strange going forward. Uh, I like the look of the uh, architecture and uh, the different mystical rooms in both Tibet and in New York and wherever the heck Baron Mordo lives. So the art is interesting. They don't, they feel like they can now specify where the master lives in Tibet, but they still, but they don't feel like they can specify where Baron Mordo lives. It says in a heavily guarded hidden castle in the heart of Europe. And that's all they're willing to say. Yeah. So presumably Central Europe somewhere. But yeah, we don't know. So anyway, uh, yeah, the, I quite a nice story where I'm I'm looking forward to more Doctor Strange. Yeah, not anywhere near as great a story as last month, I would say, but still a fun story. You know, really shows that Doctor Strange is going to work as an ongoing book. And he's got a good villain now. He's got, like you said, lots of good world building, lots of good sense of just a wonderful world. Ditko is just drawing the hell out of this book. And oh, yeah. drawing and inking, more importantly, the hell out of this book. And I guess we can safely say plotting <laughs> because yes. Stan gave him credit for plotting it. But Stan is also scripting the hell out of this book. Stan, I got to say, compare this to the R. Burns scripts or H.E. Huntley scripts we've had this month. And this is head and shoulders above Stan. If he is scripting it, is scripting the hell out of it. Doctor Strange has a lot of personality. Baron Mordo has a lot of personality. The Master has a lot of personality. And it is a fun book to read. So it's interesting. It, it ends with Doctor Strange standing in this great Dicko other dimensional world. Is He seems to be talking directly to us. He says, the yes. mystic arts of black magic are older than the memory of man. In time to come, let us peer beyond the enchanted veil together. He could be saying that to the master, but I think he's just saying that to us, the reader. Yes. I continue to love this book. I continue to love everybody working at the top of their game. And it's going to be hard. Uh, obviously, we're going to have plenty to talk about in the next two months with the arrival of the Avengers and X Men. But it's going to be hard for me going two months without my Doctor Strange fix. Yep, yep. But we will we will be getting more Doctor Strange as things go on, though. Yes. Okay, guys, we're already ringing along. Let's go ahead and split this month into two episodes. So let's go ahead and wrap up this episode here, and then we'll pick up next episode with the second half of this month. Okay, guys. So we're going to go and wrap up here, but we'll we're going to continue recording right after this. So let's go ahead and say bye here. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you very much. All right. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.